Welcome to the Crossroads of Culture and Christianity. I am your host, Jacob Jellison, joined as always by my co-host, Aaron Hove. Today, we want to explore the question, why are there four Gospels? Wouldn't one have been adequate enough to convey the message that they all four convey? And why did the four Gospel writers need to give us four different accounts of the same events? Those are just a few of the things that we want to look at for a few minutes today. When you turn into the New Testament and you find Matthew, um, you know, on one hand, all these four gospel accounts, uh, they, they share a lot of similar material. Yeah. I mean, really, you, you'll find in some of them, you know, the same story will be in several of them, uh, sometimes told very similarly, you know. Uh, some of them will arrange different, you know, Matthew will arrange the material differently yeah. than some of the others. But it's, wouldn't Matthew have been you know, enough. Do we really need four different writers writing gospels, you know, and, and in one, on a theological side, it's all, it's, it's the same gospel. It's, it's the good news about Christ, right. you know, and what he's done for us. And, uh, so, but on, you know, instead of having one, we have four on the one hand, it's like, if we want to ask the question, why four gospels? So there might be a simple thought that I would suggest. And that's number one, God knows best. I mean, we could also count up the epistles, you know, why do we have the amount of epistles we do? Why not a few less or a few more, you know? Um, So you could ask the same question of the prophets in the old Testament. Why do we have this certain amount of, of books categorized as prophets that we do? Why not more? Why not less? And so on one hand, it's God knows what's sufficient. He knows what the church needs. And he saw fit to give us four different writers who would write gospel accounts. Yeah. And uh, so on the one hand, it's it's not up to the um, genius of man to try to figure out how many gospel accounts should we have, you know? it's That's up to God. He inspired four men to write the gospels. So right. that's, that's one side. But then you look at, well, what's the value of having four? And that's where we're driving, you know, yeah. as opposed to, why didn't he just give us Matthew or just John? We have these four different gospel accounts. Um, I, I think what I want to say is on the apologetic side, the value that's there uh, is is astounding to me. It's So one of the things it does is that we have four different testimonies, four different men testifying, corroborating the same story, but even though there's so there's corroboration, they they verify back up. We've got these various eyewitnesses, you know, and Luke in particular has, I think, examined the eyewitnesses. Yeah, and uh, so we've got all of this going on. They're corroborating the same details, and so it really helps establish the historical aspect, the the, the historical accuracy, reliability of the gospel by looking at all four of these, um, and then at the same time. They don't, there's not contradiction between them, but there are differences between them. Mm-hmm. And that helps us know that they didn't just get together and write word for word the same thing. You right. know, like in a courtroom uh, setting, it's if you have all the witnesses say the exact same thing, it's collusion. It's you guys got together before this and, right. and you put this together. So we can't really trust the statement, but with the gospel accounts that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are enough differences 
that we know that's not going on. Yeah. Um, so it corroborates the, the, the reliability of it and gives us evidence. There's not collusion going on. And yeah. so on, on the apologetic side, that's, that's highly valuable. Right. And not only that, but you have the main idea behind each one of these books is they're all going to be appealing to different audiences. What they're doing is they're painting four different portraits of Christ that are tailored to specific audiences. And so just to kind of give a, just a brief overview of each one of those, if you start with the book of Matthew in, you know, rightfully so it comes first in, in our Bible, the way it's constructed. Sure. Um, Matthew begins something with something that, that has always fascinated me. And, you know, I teach the course here, but what has always fascinated me about Matthew's gospel is oftentimes we have a tendency to gloss over, genealogies. Nobody likes genealogies. It's boring. This one begot that one. And nobody wants to sit there and read them. But in Matthew's day, the reason that that was included was not, not to bore you to death. There was, it was actually very strategic. And when you learn and you begin to understand how strategic these books are constructed, it really gives you a better appreciation for what the writer was trying to accomplish. So for Matthew, Matthew begins his genealogy because it is believed and agreed upon by many scholars, and it seems like even from internal evidence, that Matthew is trying to appeal to a Jewish audience. Uh, and, and there's a number of things in the book of Matthew that lead us to believe this. Uh, but he starts with a genealogy, and the reason why he does that is because when you're appealing to a Jewish audience, especially concerning the Messiah, which is what he's doing, Jesus yeah. Christ the Messiah— you're going to want to show his legitimacy and the way that a Jewish person determined whether they were entirely Jewish or not is they traced their ancestry. And so they had a lineage or a genealogy and lineage that they would look back to, to see where did, um, where did this, where did I originate? Where, you know, my family line, where did it come from? And so Matthew very strategically is going to trace the lineage of Jesus Christ back. And he's doing that to show them that Christ is indeed the Messiah that would come in the line of David uh, to fulfill the role that was prophesied in the Old Testament all those years before. So it's very strategic. You have Luke, he gives a genealogy. Right. But he doesn't. Matthew starts, I mean, from the very beginning with yeah. the genealogy. I mean, he doesn't even lay out the 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 birth account you know the narrative of Christ's birth like Luke does you know I mean he just from the very beginning opens up with genealogy yeah so that's fascinating so you say that's a lot of that goes back to the writing to the Jewish audience yeah and notice too in uh, Matthew uh, the the ancestry is not traced all the way back to Adam the ancestry is traced all the way back to Abraham okay. Abraham is the father of the, the Jewish people. And so he doesn't go all the way back because I believe in Luke. He does. He does. He goes all the way back to, to Adam. Adam, not in, not in Matthew and Matthew. He not only does he start out with a genealogy, but in Matthew, he only goes back as far as Abraham because that's all that was necessary to prove yeah. the legitimacy of, of Jesus being a Jew. Wow. That's fascinating. Now in Luke, and, and we may come back to this. I, I probably shouldn't make this point now, but in Luke, I think when he goes through that genealogy, he goes he goes all the way back to Adam 
Uh, but then he closed, which was the son of God. Yeah. You know, so he goes yeah. all the way back to the beginning. So like you said, with Matthew, though, stop at Abraham because that's the beginning of the Jewish nation. Yeah, that was so all that was necessary. Okay, that's, that's interesting. And so then another detail about Matthew, he's it's built, he majors on the teaching aspect of Christ, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. So in Matthew, you actually have a book here that is constructed around five major discourses that are recorded. And we'll give you the discourses that are recorded. I'll give you what chapters they're in in case you want to go back and look at this. But the first discourse you come to is found, it stretches from Matthew chapter five to Matthew chapter seven, and that's the the famous sermon on the Mount. Um, and so the, that's the first one. The second one, you have the commission of the 12, which is in Matthew chapter 10, considered a discourse. Uh, and then in Matthew 13, you have the parables of the kingdom. And then in Matthew 18, you have the meaning of greatness and forgiveness. It's another discourse in that chapter. And then Finally, you have the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. So there are five major discourses that Matthew is constructed around that you're not going to find that type of construction um, grammatically or, or strategically in any of the other gospel writings. And in the Jewish world, they say that the religious instruction, religious yeah. teaching was was huge in the Jewish world. I mean, it was... It was, I guess the word I would like to use is unique. It was yeah. unique in the Jewish world. So in the Romans and the Greeks, you know, as they would worship their false gods, uh, they would go into maybe the idol temple, um, offer incense or something or other, right. you know, whatever they're going to do, a sacrifice of some kind. And, and then they would go on their way. But the idea of the entire community coming together and immersing themselves in the scriptures of their religion mm-hmm. and and hearing a discourse over the scriptures of their religion that was unique to the Jewish religion right it really was you i mean you, you didn't see that elsewhere right you have the synagogues and you have the places where they would gather and they would do that and that wasn't common in any any other culture not really. Right. And so that's why you have these five major discourses. In fact, what's fascinating about Matthew's gospel is he's the most systematically structured and organized of the four gospels. I don't think that's by accident. I mean, I know you have uh, guys that were very well organized. Luke was being a physician and things like sure. that, but it's considered, I mean, if you look at it from a literary perspective, Matthew is going to be the most systematically structured and organized, and he's going to record the life of Jesus. But at times what he's going to do is he's going to pause to develop a topic. The reason why he does that is because that's exactly what we do in teaching. Whenever we come across a topic that we're trying to convey, we're going to develop it so that the understanding is, is deepened. And that's exactly what Matthew does. And so he's going to emphasize more than Jesus's activities. He's going to emphasize his discourses. And just exactly like what you said, the reason why he does that is because he's appealing to an audience that appreciates teaching. That's what their whole religious system is built around is exposition of the old Testament and uh, coming together in synagogues and, and a, a, a rabbi expounding on the scriptures. And so that's why this whole book is constructed that way. And so if Matthew's to the Jews, moving on, what about Mark? We don't start with a genealogy. Mm-mm. It's not structured around discourses. What's unique about Mark and who's it who's its targeted audience? So Mark, it is believed is going to target heavily the Romans. Um there's a reason why that he does that. And what he's going to do is he's going to portray Christ as a servant uh, above all else. Um, and so he's going to do that 
with three characteristics that are going to make up Mark's book. The first one is he portrays Jesus as a man of rapid action. Uh, and so he's going to use probably the, the, the most commonly used or the key word in Mark's gospel is going to be the word straightway, uh, which obviously just means then or next, immediately, forthwith, by and by, as soon as, you know, it's, it's showing that he's doing these things quickly. And it's the Greek word for straightway actually occurs 40 times in that gospel. And so it's an average of nearly three times a chapter. Uh, and so the reason why is because he's painting him as a man of action. Well, you're writing to a Roman audience. Unlike the Jews that Matthew is appealing to, the Romans didn't care so much about being instructed. They didn't care so much about the teachings of Jesus. They cared about the actions of Jesus. Mark was not ignorant of that fact. He knew that. And so in order for him to be able to appeal to that group of people, people that, I mean, think about it. When you think about Roman culture, what are kinds of things that you think about? Coliseums. You think yeah. about, you know, things of that nature, things where they, they just enjoyed seeing action. They were people that, and sometimes it was wicked, violent action, sure. but it was action nonetheless. And so he's appealing to an audience that's used to, we don't want to hear the teachings. We want to see this man in action. And that's exactly how he's doing it. He does it with rapid action. He does it with vivid detail. He does it with picturesque descriptions. One writer actually said that Mark's words were like little pictures. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. He's not trying to necessarily instruct what he's trying to do is he's trying to show them, uh, give them little, uh, snippets of Christ's life and show him, uh, in action. And so that's, that's who he's trying to appeal to. And the only way to do that is to, to paint Jesus as a man that is constantly doing something constantly on the move, a man of action. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, all these gospels and we'll move on from there, but now out of all these, I think Mark is going to be your shortest gospel you know, and he just, so it's relatively short, Yeah, uh, but he moves quickly through the different pictures, little pictures, however you worded that, you know, of, of Christ in action. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting to me also that these gospel accounts, even though, and, and I realize, you know, in Matthew or Luke will have the accounts of the birth of Christ, but in large part, the bulk of all four of these gospel accounts, the mm. bulk of of, of Christ's life that's dealt with, I mean, there, there's a portion of his life that's small mm-hmm. in comparison to the time he lived on this earth. Yeah, that's true. And and it's at the very end. I mean, all four of these gospel accounts will spend, compared to the amount of time, mm-hmm. they spend just a small amount of time, you know, on his, his childhood up through till he's about 30, you know. Yeah. And, and then they'll spend, okay, several chapters on that. And then they'll spend a huge bulk of time on that last little bit of his life where he's going to lay his life down. He's going to be raised. He's going to be with them for a short time before he ascends, you know, and it's yeah. like, that's the heart of what they're wanting to take you to. But so we've got Matthew targeting a Jewish audience, Mark, a Roman audience, Luke, you told me he had targeted the Greeks. Yeah, it appears that way. There's a, there's a few reasons why we think that, uh, why scholars do. Um, his gospel uses very rich Greek language. It's very, very, his style is very rich in Greek language. And it uses some 250 words that it seems like cannot be found in any of the other Greek, or rather the other gospels. Um, and so it's estimated that about 59% of his gospel is peculiar to itself. But the reason why is in this age, the, the reason why Luke is writing in the way that he does is 
the Greek in this time was supposed to be representative of reason and humanity. And so they felt like it was their personal mission to perfect humanity. And so as one man said, the full grown Greek would be a perfect world man. And if you think about it, you know, he would, he would be able to, to meet all men on the common plane of race. And so if you think about it, all the Greek gods were, and I'm sure you've seen pictures of them and things, you know, in the statues that they made, they were some form of a perfect humanity. And that's why they were constructed the way that they were. And so what the gospel had to do for them is it had to present a perfect man. And so what Luke did is he appeals to that mindset and he writes about a perfect divine man as the savior of all men, how we can prove that seemingly internally is if you go, these verses here, these, uh, descriptions are only found in the book of Luke itself. You go to Luke chapter number two, there's two verses that I want to point to. The first one being verse number 40, the Bible says, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And so he's talking about him growing and he's talking about him waxing strong in spirit and filled with wisdom. That's an appeal to intellect. It's an appeal to, because again, the Greeks were very intellectual people, but they were also interested in the perfect man. So what, 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 what other thing is going to appeal to this group of people with that mindset than a, a child that's growing and waxing strong and filled with the spirit and the grace of God was upon him. It's a, it's a, uh, someone that is growing up and it's becoming a picture of what they have imagined a perfect person to be. You go down to verse number 52 and the Bible says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so again, that's found exclusively in the book Luke. And so he increased in wisdom and stature. And so it's talking about his increase. He's being built up. I mean, you think about the Greeks, you have uh, the Olympic Games originated in the Greek culture. Uh, you have a lot of our philosophers originated from the Greek culture. Uh, not that philosophers were not found anywhere else, but a lot of our famous philosophers sure. came from the Greek culture. And so when you begin to talk about a child that's growing, waxing strong, right there, you're appealing to a, a picturesque man. You're uh, one that's physically uh able to keep up. And then you talk about one that's filled with wisdom. Well, all of a sudden that's going to appeal to a, a Greek audience because we have a lot of scholars in the field of philosophy. And so that idea of being filled with wisdom is now going to appeal to those that whose wisdom is their pursuit. Because I think, be it, it's not necessarily godly wisdom, but a lot of the, the early philosophers, I mean, to know more and to deepen their understanding and their knowledge, what they would consider wisdom, albeit earthly wisdom, was their pursuit. And so anything like that is going to appeal to them. Yeah. So it seems like internally, that's where we're deriving this idea that Luke is writing to this audience. Okay. And then you have John and in his gospel, you had said, we, we look at it as more of a universal. It's, it's, it's not as though he's just targeting a specific, you know, with Matthew, it's the Jews, with Mark, it's the, and, and so Matthews starts out with this genealogy that goes back to Abraham. Yeah. Uh, with Mark, it's the Romans, and so it's a lot of action. We're moving fast, giving these little pictures of the life of Christ. With Luke, it's the Greeks, so Christ is the perfect man, so we present him that way. Uh, and I wonder, with Luke also, you have that genealogy where we go all the way back to we come from God. Mm-hmm. And uh, so all of that tying in. Then we have John, 
universal. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed as, as begin to look at these gospel accounts that the word world is used in John way more than in any of the other gospels. So, yeah. so in, in John, just, just a simple search, it's, you're going to find world approximately 80 times. Yeah. Um, and, and that's going to be, so if, if, if you do your search in, in a King James Bible, that's going to be at least 47 more times than the other three gospels combined. Yeah. And, uh, so it's, so like Matthew, um, and, and I don't want to get these numbers wrong. I think Matthew was about 18 times that that word right, yeah. showed up. Mark, I think it was five, five. times, mm-hmm. and then maybe in Luke, 10 times. That's you right, know. Yeah. But then you hit John, and world is used 80 times. Yeah. That's significant. Yeah. He's, he's got a focus here. You know, he's, he's got a broad audience. And, and so that, that, that seems significant to me that, that all of a sudden an increase of this word being used by John. Yeah, I think so. Like you said, you go to Matthew and he's got a specific audience, the Jews, you go to Mark, he's got a specific audience, the Romans, Luke is the Greeks, but John is going to be kind of a universal gospel. And I don't mean that in the sense of universalism. <laughs> so, which, I mean, I know, but, but universal in the sense that it's going to not appeal necessarily to a specific group of people and be constructed that way, but mainly it's going to be reaching out to all. And so the reason that we can know that internally is, I mean, you go to probably the most famous verse that everybody that's been in Sunday school for any length of time could probably quote by, you know, from, from their heart, hopefully, uh, is John three sixteen. you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so what is John driving at? What's the point? Well, his focus, I think, is he's trying to show the world as a whole that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He is God in the flesh uh, that has been manifested for us. You look at John chapter 20, verse number 31, which I think is considered the key verse to this book. And and the Bible says, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And so his purpose is going to be to call a world to faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's a call in effect. It's a call to a decision. They're not only in this book, your readers in the world are not only introduced to the story of Jesus Christ as the son of God, but they are called to a response to him in faith. Now, that being said, I don't want to try to portray this in a way that the other three gospel accounts are not applicable to us today. And only John's gospel is that's not the case at all. Right. Because I think that there are uh, very, very, I mean, they all are basically painting the same thing, the same, they're different portraits, but they're painting the same overall broad picture yes. of, of who Jesus is. And so they're all very important. I mean, in fact, the, the, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure I'm not the, the, the brunt of the information we have concerning the life of Christ can be found only in the gospels. I mean, not that we don't have anything else in other parts sure. of scripture, but if we didn't have the gospels, then we would lose a large majority of what happened in Jesus's life and ministry. And so they're all 
relevant to us and they're all important and we can draw doctrine from them and we can draw practical application. But John is going to be focused more on a broader audience, the world as a whole, as opposed to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right. And and honestly, as you were talking about these gospels, all of them being relevant for us. Um, so Paul or Peter, these different ones that write epistles. Yeah. They'll write their epistles to sometimes a particular group of churches in an area. Yeah. Sometimes a particular individual church. Yeah. Sometimes to one individual person, you know, and yet these epistles are all valuable for us. Same of the gospels. They may have a targeted audience, you know, initially. Yeah. But they're all still very valuable for all of us as, as, as the people of God. Yeah. Very true. And I think, this has been fascinating for me anyway, delving into these gospel accounts, and, and I'd like to do some more with them, maybe look at them some more in the future. But one of the things I noticed as we went through these uh, was that they were concerned that the gospel makes sense to their audience. Right. They were concerned that the gospel hit their audience, wherever their audience was, and God wasn't content. I mean, the, the message of the gospel is God doesn't stay far away and, and tell us what to do, but he comes right down and immerses himself into human culture and becomes one of us. Right. And and from within, he shows us the way, and, and he does what it takes to redeem us. And now these gospel writers are writing to particular cultures, particular groups of audiences, and, and they are giving the same gospel but packaging it in such a way it'll hit home yeah and i think we here in in the 21st century in the west need a fresh love for god a fresh love for the gospel and a fresh love for the world that'll cause us to bring the gospel to our world in such a way that it'll hit home and capture their hearts with the love of god we hope you've enjoyed the episode today. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions, feedback, comments, if you have any topics you want us to explore, we're, we're wide open. And so you can each reach us at askthecrossroads at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.